Good afternoon to panel RNZ National. A lot of people commenting on uh, Peter Fields, I've been thinking, uh, which is uh, what a uh, Michelle... Uh, Michelle Obama and uh, Donald Trump one on one would look like in terms of the presidency, but I think she's made it clear, uh, has she not, Peter, that she uh, does not want to run for president, but uh, n- not for this year, but maybe for n- another year. Who knows? No, I think I think I think we might reverse that. I think um, she said that Trump would be such a disaster that anything's possible. Anyway, to this, forget <laughs> deciles in schools. It is now barriers. This from RNZ education reporter John Gerritsen. The education ministry has come up with a new method of grouping schools with similar levels of socioeconomic disadvantage among their students. There are seven bands, each containing roughly the same number of schools and ranging from those with fewest barriers or fewer barriers to achievement to those with most barriers. Now, that info comes from equity numbers ranging from 344 to 569 and were based on personal data about every student, such as whether their parents were on a benefit or had been in prison. But they did not create obvious cut-off points for dividing schools into groups with similar characteristics. Now, several years ago, a New Zealand study found no significant difference in secondary school performance across different deciles. But for explaining, anyway, on moving away from the decile system that we all know, uh, Auckland Primary Principals Association President Kyle Brewerton joins us. Kia ora, Kyle. Uh, Kia ora. Well, first, I mean, there was a bit of information there about the rationale and, 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 the, and, and the reasons why, but do you support the move away from the decile system? Uh, in, in one aspect, for sure. Uh, what uh, happened when deciles uh, were commonplace was somehow or other, parents started to associate the decile number with the performance of the school, which, of course, it was never designed that way and it was certainly didn't meant that but that was the association that people started to make and then that sort of became the understanding so to the move away definitely helps in that regard so do you think so you say on one hand you support it on another hand you don't well on the other hand it's it's sort of basically just a it's the same thing with a different name it, um the, the right. funding's been moved around a little bit the general intent remains and that is to provide additional funding for schools where, as you mentioned earlier, they have greater needs. Uh, And those needs, uh, whilst the criteria have changed, are more or less the same. You know, it's it's those social issues, the socioeconomic issues, the hardship, the education in the home, the crowding in the home, and so on. So whilst the, uh, the detail within the data is greater, the underlying principles remain. Uh, Kia ora, Kyle. It's Ruth here. Um, When I was reading about it, I did feel like this was, uh, yes, hopefully there's a few more um, up-to-date measures because I understand Mm. the decile's been around for about 30 years. I was D1 Mm. and I was actually very proud of that. But um, I'd have to say the rebrand to the word barriers doesn't really feel like anything other than a rebrand. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's certainly the case. The, perhaps the thing that has changed is because the criteria have become more specific, if you like, 
it has meant that funding has shifted around significantly, depending on the makeup of your school. Uh, some schools have changed very little. Some schools have seen some significant shifts, you know, upwards of $100,000 per annum, and yet the same young people are in their schools that so, were there last year or the year before. So would it be fair to say, because I, I can't imagine that, the, and I would be horrified actually, if the Ministry of Education spends more money on kind of some kind of marketing campaign so everyone now understands mm. to use the word barrier rather than decile. But mm. Really, is the net effect the same, other than maybe we've got a little bit smarter on how to apply some of the equity funding? Yeah, it's hard to say at this stage. I, I think, the, as I said earlier, the, the ability to be more, uh, if you like, accurate with the funding by having greater detail and a greater understanding of the needs of those students yes. is helpful in the sense that you would hope that the money is now going to the right communities and the, and the right young people. But there's the great irony too is there's no transparency. So we as schools have no idea who the people are that are receiving this funding. So the money goes to the school and we're sort of somehow supposed to right. understand how we might use that for the kids who need it most without knowing necessarily mm. who those kids are. Yeah, text here, the decile system has been replaced by the equity index for uh, a while now. And this mm. latest iteration is just around putting the equity indices into bands so that mm. you can more easily compare a school with another band of the same equity, which is what we are talking about. Peter, you're an educator. What's your take on this? <laughs> I think I'm educating myself in cynicism. I just think that if folks are much smarter than us have decided that deciles need replacing with barriers – and Mr. President of the Primary School Association says it's as clear as mud, then we all have to worry. I mean, this is meant to be good in some way, a massive change that's expensive to do and lots of smart people have thought about. I would hope the principals would understand it backwards and forwards and clear as the azure sky. Kyle? Will we understand how it's arrived at? But ultimately, this notion of equity is far more complex than a funding stream and what we do within our schools. We know that there's far, far more to educating a young child than just what we do for six hours a day when they're in front of us and mm. outside our classes. An equity index is designed to establish another funding stream that goes to that community based on all those needs, as we know. But because we don't know necessarily who those kids are, we do our very best with that money, but we, we could well be targeting the wrong young people. Do you mm. think, Kyle, do you think that part of it, I mean, do you think the decile system um, would tend to stigmatise a school unfairly? There was an assumption that, OK, decile 10 was the best decile one, a school that Ruth went to was not the best, and yet actually uh, evidence said it's a lot more complicated than that. Do you think there was an element of stigmatisation involved in the decile system? Yeah, and that was what I sort of opened with, really, and that was one of the great drivers of this, I, I believe, is that they were really trying to remove that, that, that stigma that had become part of that decile system. Um, you know, it's entrenched for 30 years and people had arrived at that place where they felt that, as, as you pointed out, a 10 was amazing and one not so much, whereas actually that number had no relationship to the 
the achievement and the progress that the oh. young people were make, making in the school. Well, Ruth, look at you. Look at me. Here you are, you're on the panel. I mean, we, we genuinely sit around <laughs> with my friends and joke about, you know, we call each other D1s and D10s. I mean, it's, it's that, it's that <laughs> stuck in our vernacular. Yeah, really? Yes, yes, it yes. absolutely is. Mark Mayo, if you were listening, you and I are the D1s. We know that. Um, yeah, I, I, and I guess that's my fear over the, the word barrier, is that we're just kind of rebranding oh. a... A label. I mean, and in 30 years' time, are we going to be sitting around having the same conversation? Oh, okay. Kyle? And it's a deficit view too, right? Yeah. If you start throwing up there and saying, look, these people are facing all these barriers and it's going to be an uphill battle, and it becomes somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if we can talk about going from the strengths that exist and and build on those and not get hung up on all this language and all these Uh labels, uh, you know, happy days. Then we can actually focus on That's helping. That's okay. Well, everyone knows what uh, you know. Everyone knows listing uh, what the decile system is. Uh, whether they completely understand it, I don't know. But Peter, let me ask you: what, what, what would be what's the US equivalent, or at least the New York equivalent? Oh yes. Well, the the United States it has a certain equivalence, which is that education traditionally was thought to be funded locally, and that meant that if you lived in a rich community far more money was earmarked to your school. So there was sort of a built-in inequity that, you know, Aotearoa New Zealand has always tried to resist. And in that sense, um, it's very salutary, um, the notion that you're going to try to equalize things across uh, different uh, socioeconomic groups. In the United States, I guess there is some pride of place. The closer you are to your school, the more interested you are in it. But there's great inequity in public schooling because of local taxes. Interesting, yeah. Hey, Kyle, kia ora. Nice to have you on the program. Um, oh, thanks for having me. Kyle Brewitt in the <laughs> Auckland Primary Principals Association President. Um, Glenn in Christchurch says, my children went to a decile 10 school Christchurch. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> they got a poor, poor education. Um Yes, indeed. How was your schooling experience? I'd be interested to hear from you. 17 past for the panel. Now, speaking of Christchurch today, marks the 13th anniversary, as Ruth said in her, I've been thinking of the earthquake that rocked the city to its core, while parts of the city have recovered and are thriving. A quick drive around still reveals vacant sites, neglected buildings. Meanwhile, hundreds of Cantabrians still entangled in claims. Uh, thousands have been resolved, but many haven't. What's the hold up here? Is there anything council can do to move things along, or are some decisions just out of their control? Uh, can I just start with a text? Because we've had um, uh, several bits of feedback from those who live in Christchurch. Kim says, I live and work in the New Brighton area of Christchurch. To be honest, 13 years on, the area looks terrible. There are numerous um, debt buildings with overseas landlords who don't give a rat's bum about a community. The roads out here are appalling and there isn't much sign of the prosperity that is returning to other parts of the city. That said, an amazing, creative, loyal community who believe in New Brighton. So a nice place to start here with us is someone who's done research on this, Associate Professor in the Department of Property at the University of Auckland Business School, Olga Filipova. Olga, Olga, welcome. Hi, 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 Wallace. Nice to have you here. It's a pleasure. So on this review of progress in Christchurch, 13 years, what were the key things you wanted to take a look at? 
Well, we were looking specifically at the reconstruction level and neglected building in the city center. Of so we noticed that there were. <laughs> yeah, can you expand on that, Olga? When you mean the city center, do you, are you talking about the CBD? Yes, mm. the CBD and more so commercial uh, sector. What can you give us an example of that? I mean, I don't know. I went to Christchurch um, a year or so ago, and. Uh, you know, some uh, many will say there are thriving, thriving areas, really buzzy. But actually, I, I was surprised oh, at really some of the pockmarked areas in the CBD that really um, haven't been developed. Yes, there are, we've identified quite a few factors that are contributing to quite a few properties that are still being neglected and vacant. But the council started identifying these buildings back in 2016, and in 2017 they made the list public, where they put uh, just over 30 buildings on the duty list, naughty buildings. So that the media picked up that quite quickly, and that kind of became the shame and blame list for the city center. And so we started to look into why no action is happening on those around those 30 buildings. Oh, right. Okay, so that's what you really delved into. Why, after all this time, no yeah. action had been taken? I think that's um, something that many um, still try to grasp. What about you, Peter? What's your uh, sense 13 years on of how well, the city's reshaped? I've certainly been remiss not to invite you down more often, Wallace, so oh, we will have to fix that and maybe have a show or two down absolutely. here. Absolutely, you'd love to. Um, yes, I, I think... Um, traveling around, most people would understand, I think, what Olga is suggesting. Um, There's just so many buildings that one can't help but notice and say, that's really an eyesore. That's really a pity. Why would that not be taken care of? Why would that not be cleaned up? And so I think that you would notice without a doubt just on a cursory trip around the CBD. Um, So that's that's the first thing to say. Undoubtedly, it's, it's an eyesore in places. Um, now, um, I'd be interested in other conclusions from the review, though, that might suggest uh, uh, the various reasons, because I'm certain a lot goes into it. And I would love yeah. to know, Wallace, if we could ask uh, Olga, um, if I may call her that, um, yep. um, what percentage are we talking about? Because while it's an eyesore and you notice them, maybe it's still a very small percentage, in fact, of the rebuild. Well, of course, it's it is a small percentage, but like you said, they do stand out as quite big eyesores in the city center. And they serve as a reminder of a trauma probably most of the people want to move on from. And so that's why the action really needs to be taken on those sides. Um, but because it's private property, it's difficult sometimes to enforce that. Actually, that's one thing I was reading in an article on the press about this, and uh, while many, the likes of myself, will go to Christchurch, go, wow, look what's happened. A lot of uh, people who live in Otatahi uh, will go, well, actually, you know, who live every day there go, it's actually not fast enough. Uh, Ruth, I mean, you're from here. What's uh, your questions, your I thoughts, am. your comments? I take the point, Peter, when, you know, I walk around the central CBD area of Christchurch often, um, and you know, there are such amazing developments and everything um, on the surface looks great until you walk around a corner and you see this huge, huge site that's 
full of rubbish and, you know, smells like someone's walked out of a bar at 2am and gone to the toilet there. They are absolutely revolting areas. Um, So I take the point that, yes, as a percentage um, of the CBD um, rebuild, they may be really small, but they, to Olga's point, they do trigger... um, trauma in people and they re-victimise and attract antisocial behaviour. So I really would like to see that out of this work and work that is going on, uh, that these things are addressed particularly for moving forward. You know, we're 13 years on um, and we've got the same thing uh, with Murawai, with Hawke's Bay. Right. We have got issues where disaster strikes and councils are or at least claim they're hamstrung um, in terms of dis- disaster recovery. It's a long tail. 100%. Yeah, sure. So on that, Olga, what solution? You say that perhaps new legislative tools are needed to support local councils? Yes, because at the moment they're just using ordinary time legislation where you probably would use it to deal with a couple problematic owners. Here you have dozens of such sites, so it's difficult to use existing legislation. And that's why some review of policies that councils can use to really enforce swift action that you know can make things happen faster is necessary. But there are some decisions that were taken earlier on in the process, like with the prolonged cordon um, and delays with the anchor projects that delayed private investment. And so there is a lot of factors that contribute to it. Very good. Thank you for being uh, with us on the program. That's um, uh, Associate Professor Olga Filipova from the Department of Property, Auckland uh, University Business School um, on the rebuild in Christchurch. Having said that, looking at sort of a on a brighter note, Peter, there are some really astonishing, um, you know, th- things being done. Uh, for example, the one that really blew my mind actually in the CBD was the new convention centre there. Quite something, quite a build. Yes, it is. Um, but you also note that. Of course, that's next to Cathedral Square. Cathedral yeah. is being rebuilt. That's taken a long time. Um, but even there, the old Ridges Hotel is still um, yeah. either in litigation or what, whatever it is. It's an eyesore and horrible and to smells. think that's right next to the convention center, Wallace, that you uh, mm-hmm. rightly note is a real, uh, a real tribute. 26 past for the panel are in Z National. Uh, well, I thought this was a great read on Australian Newswires on how school lunches have changed over the years. Uh, the lunchbox is also quite political, isn't it? Pushback from parents telling educators to get out of the lunchbox. But they have changed as tastes change and a focus on having a healthy diet and good nutrition. 20 years ago, it was processed meats, packets of chips, and chocolate bars. These days, it's pieces of cucumber, little tomatoes, maybe two biscuits, and water. What did instead of the uh, what are they? What did I have? The um, jungle juice. Raro. Raro uh, jungle juice. It was and called warm yogurt. <laughs> What did you have in your lunchbox? Some wonderful responses coming through. Te Aomoto Primary School. Two roast potatoes and a sausage for 50 cents. 
came in a white greasy bag on a Friday. This is the tuck shop. You had to order it through the classroom and the lunch monitor came to drop it off. It was all very exciting. Late 70s, early 80s. The special treat was a milk biscuit, powdered block of milk dust, either vanilla, banana or chocolate. Wonderful bit of social history there. What did you have in your lunchbox? Text me 2101. Round the panel, Ruth. I had the luncheon sausage, two brits of white bread, tomato sauce. You? Carol would never have given me white bread. I did have a sandwich, but, you know, halfway through the year, you get a bit sick of that. So we went to crackers and cheese. Always had fruit. Huntley Palmer's. Oh, of those, course. Those crackers. Course. Yeah, those big ones, dry. Hunt, yeah, yeah, dry as anything. Mm. Yeah, and then, yes. But the aniseed wheel. We were allowed to buy an aniseed wheel every couple of weeks, and that was really exciting. You were allowed to go to the tuck shop for an aniseed wheel. And if you were really clever, you could put the whole thing in your mouth and twist it over and over and over again. The days of the tuck shops. Yeah. Yep, yep. Mean, mine, as I said, uh, it was a Sally Lunn. It was the, uh, that's the coconut, Peter. That's the co- raspberry yeah. coconut ice on top. They're a very New Zealand thing. Peter, what about you? Well, I'm going to take a little move here, because I'm such a shallow person. Um, rather than look inside, I just want to make a couple observations. One is that we used to have these light brown bags that were only used for school lunches, and people brought them in that and used them for absolutely nothing else. So we, I remember that. And so I'm curious to see if anybody wants to email you or contact you, Wallace, and talk about what kind of outside of their school box they had? What kind of things did they have on their lunchbox? What did you have on your lunchbox? I can recall it very clearly. It was a, it was a sticker of a superhero. Um, <laughs> it, it was a big, bright thing. But my drink bottle, was, I can recall it very... Who recalls there was a particular drink bottle in the late 70s? It was kind of a rectangular, and it was called the Kinky Drinky. Uh, I hear you. I hear you, yes. And it wasn't, um, you could kind of see through it. It that's wasn't a it. dark coloured plastic. That's it. Yes. Yeah. And the white screw lid. That's the one, yeah. the white screw lid. It was yeah. called the kinky drinky with a smiley face. You know, it's kind of almost rave party era. Um, but <laughs> when you went to the dentist, though, yeah. did you get the stickers, like the big yeah. tooth sticker? And did you put that on your lunchbox? I put those on my lunchbox. But Peter, it's interesting you say that because growing up and watching those American sitcoms, and they all had the brown paper bag. And I thought, goodness gracious me, sustainability, 30 years ahead of the time. And here you are. Was it, a, was it, quite a, was it just a paper bag? Yeah, it's just what it was. And Weird. for some reason, it was, it was, it was shaped in a in unique way. It could easily fit a sandwich. Um, actually, our sandwiches, we often made with Wonder Bread. And the wonder of that was, how could you make bread with absolutely zero taste? <laughs> But what if your jam or something leaked on your brown paper bag? Like, oh, you're right. You're just, right. That happened. That was a risk. But I guess you could take a risk too with a lunchbox. How and, ahead of your time like were you guys? Paper bag lunchboxes in the uh, in the seventies. Uh, don't forget school milk back in the fifties. Not exactly in the lunchbox, but supposed to feed us. I had to force it down while teachers watched us. Yes. Um, in the early seventies, <laughs> jelly crystals were the coveted thing of the lunchbox. My mum was a dental nurse, so I could only dream. <laughs> Here's another one. I had lettuce and Marmite sandwiches yes. for lunch for lunch, uh, and Piccadilly. Which oh, is yes, like, Piccadilly. Yeah, exactly. Everyone had raisins, surely. Beetroot yep. uh, right. sandwiches and raisins, says one. Um, a, a big response to coming about the Christchurch uh, rebuilds. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.